This is the fifth week of a series that we're in here at Mac. If you're new with us, we're in a series called A Better Story. Uh, and we're looking at the Bible not primarily as a list of moral requirements or theological information, but as the grand story of a God who created everything that we see, created everything good, and, and included in that creation are human beings, humans that are made in the image of God to worship him, to walk with him, to work, to rest, to be creative, all of this purpose God gave us for advancing his purposes in the world. That's why we were made. And you get to the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, of our story, and, and at least I speak for myself saying this is going to be an amazing story. We're set up for success. But then you turn to chapter 3. This is where we were last week, where we meet the serpent who is identified in the Bible several times in what follows as the antagonist of the story. The devil or Satan is this fallen angelic being that God created as a uh, part of the supporting cast, but he rejected God's storyline. He wanted to be God. And so then he comes down to the garden and he sort of pitches the same rewrite to Adam and Eve. Hey, guys, I, are you sure God is right? What if there's a better way than what God is proposing? And in the process of suggesting this rewrite, he suggests a reversal of roles and says, hey... Eve, I know God is the main character, but that could be you. You could decide what's good and evil. And as we saw last week, and we can, you can read in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve bought into it. They, they accepted that rewrite. But rather than getting the fulfillment and freedom and, and wisdom that they were looking for as they began to write their own stories, it was replaced by shame and guilt and hiding from God and fear. And at this point in the story, just two chapters in, I guess three chapters in, you could be tempted to ask, now, how is this a better story? But I was thinking about that this week, that first of all, we've talked about how this story provides a rational and comprehensive explanation for reality as we see it. And we've focused specifically on the, the beginning of everything, the complexity of the universe, the design and the beauty and the order that we see, but also how as humans we are creative and intelligent and moral beings, despite maybe our efforts to be otherwise. Contrary to the popular narratives of our day, we cannot fight the desire for justice or to help the marginalized or to take care of the planet. Things, by the way, that were hardwired into us as part of the image of God. And so this story makes sense not only of the beautiful parts of reality as we see it, but also, and I would say most significantly, the broken parts of reality. I was reflecting on movies that I grew up uh, watching in the 90s, epic movies. You might recognize Braveheart and Legends of the Fall and Gladiator. There's kind of a genre of movies there that were just one after another that if, you, if you've seen those movies, I don't recommend any movies to anyone because I don't know where people are at with movies, but... If you've seen those movies, there's some like devastating moments. And yet people love those movies. And I think it's because it connects to something true in our experience as humans, as opposed to glossing over, right? My brothers and I growing up, you know, Hallmark movies. We, we would use that as a derogatory term, you know, like that's so Hallmark. And the idea that there's sort of this cookie cutter thing where everything ends up the way you always want it to. And there's something about you that goes, that's not, a, that's not good. That's not right. Um, it makes me feel good, but it's just not true to reality. 
And so as I've read the Bible, there's many moments in the Bible where I'm like, gosh, you think they might have edited that a little bit. Uh, parts that I'm reading the Bible to my kids and I'm like, I don't know if I can read that part to my kids yet. Um, you know, or at least gloss over some of the more messy parts. For example, the catastrophic moral failures of Israel's most beloved king. The endless cycles of rebellion among God's own people. How when Jesus rose from the dead, it was women who saw him. And then they went and told the men who were in charge of just basically everything in that time, and they didn't believe. And I thought, boy, if I were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I would have like tweaked that just a little bit. But the story is realistic. It's this grand story that not only makes sense of where we come from, logically, of who we are in our experience as human beings, but it does something that I would say no other story of our culture has been able to do. It points the way forward from brokenness to redemption. Not just figuring out how to live with feelings or in most cases in our culture, numb feelings or distract ourselves from feelings, but it tells us actually God is redeeming us in those painful moments. And that all of this pain isn't going to last, that God is going to bring us back to the way we were made to live. It is a better story. And so this morning, um, speaking of redemption, we're going to pick up at least initially with where we left off last week when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. God is communicating consequences. And all of this is going to lead us forward to meeting Jesus. And we're going to look at an interaction he had with someone. But God is communicating consequences to Adam and Eve, but he starts with the serpent. And listen to what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity, that's hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So there's not only just a, a, a logical statement of you're going to be at odds with humanity, but there's this, in this moment of profound failure is also God's fix for the problem of sin. That, that, that this offspring of the woman will deal with the enemy. And we know this offspring is, is Jesus. And the way I was thinking about this week is embedded in the curse is the cure. Genesis 3.15, embedded in the curse is the cure. And then I got a little bit, I nerded out a little on the linguistics of it, that the word cure is literally embedded in the word curse. Just minus the s, right? Oh, right? Jesus came to undo the work, thank you. A little late, but you got it. Um, to undo the effect of the serpent, of the enemy, of really the authority we gave to the enemy. Jesus came to take that authority back. Uh, but it, but it, it paints this picture of, of the enemy, of the serpent striking the heel, which I think is kind of funny imagery of the enemy trying to keep up with God's redemptive purposes, but always just behind He's striking, he's striking, he's striking. But then God says, one day you're going to land a blow. You're going to strike his heel, but in that very moment you connect with his heel, that same foot will come down and crush your head. Now we know that the crucifixion was the moment Satan thought he defeated Jesus. And it was the exact same moment that Jesus crushed Satan. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it this way. Through death... Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. Man, if you like irony in stories, how's that? That's tough to beat. 
Through death, the moment that Satan thought he'd won, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. He conquered death. And so God makes this promise in Genesis 3.15, but by the end of the chapter, reality sets in. Adam and Eve are pushed out of the garden. They're no longer able to stay in the garden, which you can read more about that in that chapter. But for the sake of time, they're, they're out of the garden. They're trying to adapt to a new reality where work for Adam is suddenly frustrating. Can anybody relate to that? Where labor for Eve is suddenly painful. I can't relate, but many of you can. Where there's conflict in marriage, fighting between siblings, and even murder. So as you're, as you're following the story, you see the kind of the wheels coming off the bus. And, and chapter 5, though, tells us why. When God created mankind, he made them in the image of God. We know that, right? But verse 3 adds something to that post-garden. When Adam had lived 130 years after Cain and Abel, by the way, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Now that not only speaks to the fact that we look like our parents, but it speaks to the fact that humans are now born not only in the image of God, which we still are, but also in the image of our fallen parents. We're born with these coexisting but conflicting desires to be close to the one who made us. I think everyone has that. But also simultaneously in control of my own story. You relate to that? And this all reaches a low in chapter 6 where it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil continually. I don't think you can make a more depressing statement or analysis than that. And you continue to read in that chapter this devastating decision to flood the earth, to remove the wickedness, and it grieved God that this is what it had become. But after the flood, this is what I want us to focus as we look forward to Jesus. God says something fascinating. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of humans for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the very reason God flooded the earth, man's heart is evil, he says, that's the reason I'm never going to flood again. I'm like, what's going on here? I think God is saying no amount of floods will ever fix the problem. No amount of floods is ever going to get to the root of greed, of jealousy, of selfishness. And I would say the same for many of our interventions today, as important as they are and necessary, political and social and, and military, none of them, none of them can deal with the human heart. But this is why on the way to meeting Jesus, our promised redeemer, the offspring of the woman, on the way to meeting him, there are 39 books of the Old Testament, and in those 39 books are over 300 specific prophecies that are all fulfilled in one man. Jesus, which is statistically impossible, we could say, unless Jesus actually is who he says he is. So, so you read this, and, and embedded and woven throughout these prophecies is the repeated promise that God is going to give us a new heart, a new nature, one that doesn't just say okay to God's story, but actually loves it and wants it. Amen? Is that good news? God is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with this. And I think the reason there's so many prophecies 
is there is so much messiness. And at all of these points of failure and brokenness, God says, hey, remember, I'm going to send a redeemer. And every time he provides a new piece of information, a new detail, that all is fulfilled in Jesus. Where he was born, where he would grow up, what he would be like, all of it. It's amazing. But the need for this new heart, to me, is nowhere more obvious than in the last line of the book of Judges, because it resonates with me today. The last line of the book of Judges says this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Would you say that is true of today? Where God's original storyline that he began to write in the garden has now splintered into thousands of competing storylines. You feel the confusion? We're going to talk more about that next week, but the question that I said we would pick up today and next week is how do we engage with people in this in this culture? How do we engage with people when there's all of these competing storylines and introduce them, engage them with God's story? Well, this brings us to Jesus because as I was reflecting on, on what a task this feels like with the complexity of everyone's different worldviews and stuff coming together, I felt a bit overwhelmed because I'll just admit I haven't been awesome at this. I've struggled at engaging people with God's story. And part of it is I can find myself pretty clustered up into Christianity and the Christian community. And I'm like, I don't even have a non-Christian friend, right? So I'm like, how am I going to talk with the church about this question? But then it suddenly hit me, man, who better to look at than Jesus? Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 1, is the exact representation of God, the image that we've been trying to get back to since the garden. I know I'm made for more. I just don't know how to get there. Jesus shows us exactly who God is and exactly how God made us to live. So that's what we're going to look at today. And if you have a Bible, this is where I would invite you to turn to John chapter 4. John 4, Jesus has this uh, well-known interaction with a Samaritan woman. And um, in case that's brand new to you, Along the way, as you're turning to John 4, I want to give you some context so we understand what's going on here. Um, Jesus is in Judea. Now, we have a map here that just shows the area where Jesus was at. This is kind of the the larger area. But Jesus was down in Judea, sort of the the hub of religious life for the Jews, right? This is where the the, the religious leaders were. And there was growing tension. They were hearing about Jesus' ministry and his activity, and Jesus knew this is going to cause some trouble. And so Jesus decided to travel up to Galilee, which was sort of the uh, inhabited primarily by non-Jews, Gentiles, as we we refer to them. Um, And so Jesus is like, I'm going to go up to Galilee, but to get there, he has to go through Samaria. Now, that green line is the most direct route. That would make sense. But the red line represents the way that most Jews, especially Jewish leaders and rabbis, traveled. In other words, they purposely went around Samaria. And let me explain a little bit why. About 700 years before this moment, the Assyrian army came and attacked Israel. And they carried off all of these people as exiles. They took them away from their homeland, took them back to their place. But something I really never understood is they left behind a lot of the Jews, and specifically the lower classes of society. That's kind of hard to hear, but it's reality. I mean, you can almost picture the enemy looking and being like, "Uh, we're just going to leave them here. And when they carried off the rest of the Jews, those people left there began to 
intermarry with the pagan nations around them. They began to sort of incorporate some of their pagan practices, even incorporate some of their gods into their religion. And so you can see why for centuries there's been animosity between the purest Jews and these mixed breed, if you're a Harry Potter person, mudblood, right? Muggle, right? There's these, there's, they, just, they were despised even more than Gentiles. And so on this particular day, even though there is a strong cultural tradition to go around Samaria, Jesus breaks with tradition and he goes directly through Samaria. And verse 5 of John 4 is where we're going to pick up with our story now. It says that he, Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar or Suchar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, which was about three days from Judea at this point, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour or noon, so Jesus is hot, he's tired, when a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So even at this time, John points to this cultural divide. And for the record, we don't have time to go through the entire chapter of John 4 today. We're just going to highlight some of Jesus' interactions. Um, So you can read that all on your own later. But what I want us to see is that at the outset, Jesus crossed multiple boundaries talking to a Samaritan and talking to a woman. And we're going to get into this. But um, what I want us to see, and it's really critical, and it's a foundation for all the other, other observations, is that Jesus moved toward people the religious community avoided. I'm pausing to let that sink in. Because, man, I can think of so much relevance for us today. Jesus moved toward people the religious community avoided. Where the Jews said, we don't deal with those people. And Jesus was like, I don't care. Right? I, I'm going to go toward them. And they called him a friend of sinners. You know that? You can see that in the New Testament. They referred to him as a friend of sinners. They meant it as an insult. I think for Jesus, he was like, oh, it's actually a compliment. Thank you. But friends, there's so much we could say and apply to this in our current time where I would say as Christians, speaking very generally, of course, we officially love all people, right? Of course we love all people because God loves all people and the Bible says we should, so we do. Practically though, I think we have our barriers, our boundaries, our groups that we avoid. Maybe maybe it's a transgender community, maybe it's homosexuality or someone, and that doesn't mean that Everyone you engage with, you affirm in every single thing that they're doing, but Jesus moved toward people the religious community avoided. And as Christians, I think we have our own ways of going around Samaria. So it's a moment for us to reflect and say, am am, am I huddled up in my Christian community or am I intentionally moving toward people that have felt pushed out by the church? The reality here and why it is so important is you cannot reach someone that you're not close to. We can't reach people we're not close to. That's just a fact. So Jesus engages with this Samaritan who's also a woman. And something about this time that's important to note is that Jewish rabbis, men, would not interact publicly with women. They just didn't. And in in most cases, not even their own wives. 
So that was tradition, that was culture, but Jesus, again, just, just crosses over both of these boundaries, which is why she's visibly shocked. How is it that you, a Jewish man, are talking to me, are asking me for a drink? Now, that's another one that, when I first read it, it seemed a little demeaning to me. Hey, get me some water. But um, I read up on this a little bit. It was actually honoring gesture to this woman. Because she knew the well, she'd been there a lot, she knew how to get water, and instead of being like, well, I'm the man, I'm going to pull up water, move aside, he, he, he honored her. He said, hey, would you get me a drink? Which I think even further shocked her. And, and what we see here is many times in Jesus' ministry, he allowed people to serve him. Jesus allowed people to serve him. And where this connects for me in my Christian experience is I often have this one-way mindset. Like, I'm a Christian, therefore I have all the resources that people need. I, I'm here to love and serve and contribute, and I don't want to be indebted to anybody because uh, I'm here to serve and give. And I, can anyone relate to saying it's hard to allow yourself to be served? It's hard for me to allow myself to be served. But Jesus regularly um, saw the gifts in others, saw the contributions, and, and he basically said, you could help me. And you know what that does? It fosters mutuality and relationship to honor people's personhood, to say, you've got something that I could benefit from. You know, growing up in, in the church, we were told and encouraged to only shop at Christian businesses. We were given a pamphlet, like a little brochure that listed them all off. Only go to these businesses because these are the Christian businesses, the ones that go to heaven one day. I'm kidding. I, I know, what, I know what they mean by that. And, and for the record, I'm all for supporting each other, right? When you hear about things, love one another, especially the brotherhood. I think there's precedent for that. But I'm like, how does that fit with Jesus? He's constantly going to unbelievers. He's going outside, and he's engaging and building friendships and going to their home for meals. I think we miss out on a lot of opportunities to build relationships and to honor and to bless their contribution to society. But Jesus asked this woman for a drink. She's like, why, why are you asking me? And in verse 10, we continue. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Notice Jesus identifies himself in this moment as the one who can meet all her deepest needs. And so something we have to remember when we're talking with people about uh, water or sports or politics or whatever it is, what is, our, what is our goal? What would be best case scenario in those conversations? Is it to get people to change? Is it to win an argument when something controversial comes up? Our goal as believers should always be to introduce people to Jesus. Not that we manipulate and force the conversation, but that is our heart. Is I, you just got to see him. right? When Philip went and found Nathaniel, and Nathaniel was, was skeptical, he didn't say, well, now listen. He just said, come and see. Come and see. Like this woman, people, if they knew the gift of God, if they knew who it was that made them, who it was that, that gave them everything, that loves them, that died on the cross in their place, man, that would change everything, wouldn't it? I was thinking about when Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 is writing about people who are lost. He identifies the root of their lostness, not as immoral behavior, 
He doesn't say, well, they're, they're just terrible people, which we know from our experience isn't true. He identifies the root of their lostness as the blindness to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, that's what everyone needs to see, who Jesus really is. And until then, it's these veils of like religious garbage, like, like all of the baggage and all of the history, and they go, well, the church has been terrible. Okay, that's true. Sometimes they have. They need to see Jesus because he is the image of the invisible God, that image that we lost in the garden that everyone's saying, I know I was made for more. I just don't know what that is. And when they see the glory of Jesus, they go, that's it. And guys, that was, I won't share right now, but that was literally my story, my conversion story. I grew up in the church. Both my parents worked in the church. I knew so many Bible verses from Awana and VBS and all the things. None of it made any difference until God opened my heart to see Jesus, and then everything changed. So Jesus introduces himself to this woman, but I want you to notice how he does it. I think this is also significant. We need to introduce people to Jesus, but how we do that? Jesus doesn't lead with I'm the Messiah, the Christ, who has come from God, right? Now, if you keep reading, which we will, he gets to that, and she realizes that's who he is, but look at how he starts. He starts by revealing himself to this woman at the level of her immediate felt need. And I want you to think about that. She's coming to the well because she's thirsty. She wants water, and Jesus knows that, and so he's speaking to something real. You're thirsty. I get that. Guess what? I can give you living water. Verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Can't argue with that. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Now, put yourself in this woman's shoes. How does that sound to her in this moment? She's like, dude, yes. And, and we don't have to guess um, because verse 15, she tells us, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Whatever you're talking about, I want it so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, we have to recognize the fact that she missed the spiritual connection here, but she absolutely connected to what Jesus was saying. She was interested. And friends, what we see Jesus doing here is, I think, so important. Jesus speaks to people at the level of their felt needs which takes some time, right? You can't just have some memorized religious language that you bring into every conversation. Which, by the way, a lot of it isn't a felt need for people. You know, you can be justified with God. How many of your coworkers care? I mean, maybe, I wouldn't say that's not what they need. It is what they need. They just don't know they need that. So they're like, cool. Or, hey, you can go to heaven one day. Thanks, I like it here, just fine. Like, so, so sometimes we're speaking in terms the world no longer speaks. It's a foreign language. But if we can speak to the desire for significance, for success, a desire to be loved and accepted and part of something bigger than ourselves, everybody wants that. And if we can speak of our experience of Jesus meeting those tangible needs, guys, we connect with people. But this requires, as I said, us starting to learn people's stories and listen for that. Not listen for differences. Well, do we agree politically? Who cares? Are we trying to win an argument or are we trying to win souls? But if we're listening for people and saying, okay, this is where they're at. 
I now understand them a little better. I know how to talk to them. You know, I was thinking when Jesus called Simon and Andrew, he went down to the docks, and these guys were out on the boat fishing. And you notice if you read that story, Jesus doesn't come to them and say, gentlemen, come and we will evangelize the masses together, right? They would have been like, you're a weirdo. Get out of here. But he said, follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men. First of all, you're like picturing men swimming around in the water and the hook and like you're like, I say, I guess nets, you know, right? They're pulling them up in the nets. But, but in that moment, what did, what did Simon and Andrew want more than anything? Fish. They wanted to, how many fishermen? I love fly fishing. Um, they wanted to put their net in at the right place at the right time, and they wanted to pull in a haul of fish. And Jesus says, I can do better. I can give you better. And they were just intrigued enough to drop their nets and follow him, and they became his disciples. So Jesus has this woman's attention, and this is where he peels back a layer. He highlights a deeper need underneath that thirst that she had. Verse 16, he said, go, call your husband and come here. This would have been, by the way, culturally wise and appropriate. Jesus is talking to this woman, and it would have been appropriate for him to say, hey, probably you should have your husband with you if we're going to be having this conversation. But the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. (laughs) Awkward, right? This is the moment, by the way, in the next line, the woman realizes there's something special about Jesus. You're a prophet or something, I can see this, like, how do you know this about me? But friends, Jesus is peeling back the layers, and what really occurred to me this week is this woman coming to the well, right, back to water, coming to the well over and over, never able to permanently satisfy this thirst. I think that is actually a metaphor for her relationship history. One marriage after another, searching for love, searching for intimacy, to be known, to belong, and we don't know if if the dudes were were bad guys or if she was sabotaging all those relationships. But she was thirsty for something more than just water, right? And Jesus knew that. He starts with water and then he digs down and goes, actually, I think this is where you're hurting. This is what you're going after and this is where you keep coming back to the well and it's not doing it for you. See, those are the places we need to go with people is to identify, man, how's that story you're living working for you? And this isn't just the men in this woman's life. She's at the well alone in the middle of the day, which I've read in several commentaries, women never did. Women went in groups in the morning when it was cool. So this woman is a loner. We're learning about her story. But to pinpoint the deeper need, Jesus has to say some hard things. Right, the stuff that maybe in our conversations with people, we start to squirm and we're like, so man, we've had an amazing fall, haven't we? <laughs> Let's change the subject. But I just can't get away, and we can't get away from the fact that Jesus in John chapter 1 is described as being full of what? Grace and truth. He never put those things against each other. His demonstration of truth never negated or conflicted with his expression of grace. He was full of both of them, and the the reason is one without the other won't bring transformation in people's lives. 
I think as the church, man, that's a hard balance to stay. It's not a balance. It's the fullness of Christ in us. But it's grace and truth. And, 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 as, and yet as I studied Jesus' interactions, how does he bring grace? How does he bring truth? I saw a fascinating pattern. And a couple examples. We don't have time for a bunch, but just two examples. In John 5, Jesus heals a man who was paralyzed for almost 40 years. This extravagant demonstration of grace. He helps him walk again. But then what's the last thing that is recorded that Jesus says to this man? And you remember? Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Ooh, right? Like not only identifying sin, implying you're sinning and you need to stop. But you see, that didn't undo the grace that he'd show this man earlier. Another similar example, I think, is John 8, a woman caught in adultery, ready to be stoned and killed by the religious people surrounding her. And Jesus says what? I don't condemn you. I mean, speaking of radical grace in that culture, I don't condemn you. But then what's the last thing Jesus says in that interaction? Go and sin no more. Guys, as I was studying and thinking through this, we see a pattern that Jesus was not only full of grace and truth, which we know, but I see more often than not, he led with grace and followed with truth. He led with grace. He, he looked for ways to, to go toward people, to smile at them, to welcome them, to bless them, to heal them, to have a meal in their home and let them serve him to validate them, to, to speak to the pain, to listen, to encourage. And again, all of that, not instead of truth, which sometimes we get in a little bit of a ditch as a church, as the church, not instead of truth, but to open the door for truth. Not only to be shared, but to be heard and received by the listener. So Jesus references this woman's relationship history, and after saying, yeah, you're obviously a prophet or something, what does she say in verse 20? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, if you're trying to connect the dots between the relationship history and be like, what does that have in common with the conversation about worship? The answer is nothing. And that's the point. When people are uncomfortable, they change the topic. And that's okay. I, I think it would be interesting if the very next verse, Jesus said, hold on, stay on topic. Let's get to the bottom of those husbands. It's, it's really beautiful that Jesus, who is the exact reflection of God, he is God, lets her lead the conversation here. He, he goes on to have a conversation about worship with her, which we'll look at in a second. But the alternative would, would be sort of this frantic evangelistic mindset that I grew up with. And I'm not blaming people. It was just kind of where I, I just, I got to get all of my points in. And if the topic changes, I'm like, and I'm kind of panicky and I'm stuck in my head and I'm trying to think how to get it back. But one thing we see is Jesus wasn't in a hurry. Jesus wasn't in a hurry with people. He, he let conversations go where they wanted. Yes, he was very intentional to include things and to say things, but you don't see him with this sort of angstiness. I grew up in, in um, a church where we had this guilt-inducing mantra that was regularly stated that when we're talking to someone who doesn't know Jesus, this statement would just be going through my mind, what if they die on the way home? And let's face it, that could happen. There's a legitimate reason for urgency. We, we're not here forever. We don't have our relationships that we have forever, but it wrecked me. 
And I found myself anxious and, and worried and actually manipulating conversations in a way that I lost friends. Because I was like, well, what if they die on the way home? That's making myself God. I don't know what's going to happen. We don't control outcomes. But I, I thought of a metaphor recently, just in the last week or two, that really brought some healing to that place and I think set me free to begin to re-engage as I haven't as much lately. How many of you, between watching a movie and watching an episode of a TV show, how many of you prefer a movie? Okay. How many of you prefer a TV show episode? How many wish I'd stop asking questions and telling you to raise your hand? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you. Hallelujah. I see that hand. No. Um, TV shows have really grown in popularity. If you just go on, you know, any, any of those channels, Netflix or whatever, there's TV shows, TV, lots of TV shows. And, and it, this is a little bite-sized, sometimes 20-minute long episodes uh, where you get a little bit of the story, but you don't get the whole thing. And, and man, I, I'll be honest with you. I like shows, um, but every time I watch a movie, I get like an hour in, and I'm like, is it still going? Has anybody felt that way? Like you've taken three popcorn breaks, and you're just like, ugh. Um, Sorry, it's something about our attention spans. But, uh, but I grew up approaching evangelistic conversations like a movie. I have to get everything in, and it has to be resolved by the end. Are you ready to pray to receive Jesus? Are you sure? You sure? What if you don't make it home? Anyway, right? Like, and I'm like frantically trying to get everything resolved. But man, I see Jesus approaching conversations like episodes in a show. Where we can have a conversation and know by the end of that conversation, the story's not over. And if you don't see everything in that episode that you were hoping to see, what do you do? Watch the next episode. Have another conversation. And rather than this, this frantic feeling of I have to fit Jesus into every conversation, newsflash, he's already there. He's already working in ways you don't see. Before you got there and after you leave, Jesus is there. Now that doesn't mean we don't have to bring him up and speak of him. But Jesus is the one leading these things. And I see him operating with this freedom to just be present to people. So this woman brings up worship, which is a very sensitive topic, a popular controversy in her cult, in the, between the cultures. And I think of it almost as her protective mechanism pushing Jesus away. Yeah, we say it's worship here. You Jews say it's there. Which, which side are you on, you know? Friends, does that sound like familiar language today? Like, I, I only wish it was about worship, you know? We're, con we're fighting over, over politics and gun control and racial justice and abortion and immigration and climate change and taxes and education. I could keep going, right? All these topics where we are programmed and preloaded to polarize. To the point where we can't even have a conversation about the values represented underneath those conflicting conversations. Pick a side. But how does Jesus respond to her? She's like, we Samaritans worship here. You Jews go there. Where are you at? Jesus, in verse 21, says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is at option one or option two. And he's like, it's, it's actually three. Did you know, by the way, there's a third way? I know as Americans, that's hard. There's not just blue or red, right? There's a third way. It's not worship the planet as if it's the only thing we'll ever have or be totally ridiculously irresponsible with it. 
It's not ban all weapons or get your hands off my guns. I'm sorry I spoke in a southern accent. That wasn't. <laughs> I don't think it's just located to the south. But Montanans are pretty, pretty feisty. But do you know there's a third way? And, and in that third way, which represents everything between the polar opposites, there's a ton of common ground, isn't there? There's a lot we could talk about with people if we were willing Jesus, in verse 22, continues, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. This is just a truthful statement about the history of these two people groups. But verse 23, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You know what I hear Jesus saying to this woman, translation for her? God is looking for you. The Father is seeking you. And you know why she brought up worship? Because she cares about it. She's thinking about it. She's been thinking about it. I, I know I'm made to worship. I just don't know where. And Jesus is like, it's not about where you are. It's who. And so he finds common ground with her. He turns the brilliance of Jesus. He turns a temptation to divide, to say, well, I'm a Jew, so I say Jerusalem. Well, okay, that's the end of the conversation. He turns a temptation to divide into an opportunity to connect. What if we did that? What if we thought that way? He cuts through the surface conversation in the culture to the heart of the real issues, where he finds common ground. And so the insight here is Jesus focused on what they had in common. He focused on it. Rather than reacting to their differences, he recognized similarities. You want to worship. I want to worship. But this, friends, is where the woman finally understands Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, which I think is profound. And if it had blown up at any point leading up to that, who knows if how it would have gone. But I was thinking of a practical example today just to apply this seeking common ground. And I was trying to think of one that would make us squirm a little. So um, one of them is uh, climate change, right? If you prefer global warming, that gives a little bit of like... It's been a longer conversation than just the last couple of years. Saving the planet, environmental issues, there's a lot to that, right? And it's a conversation. Um, but if you haven't noticed, it's a hot topic. It's a pun. Come on, people. <laughs> well, I'm not very punny. Um, it's also one, though, that is, is deeply polarized, right? As I mentioned earlier, of people who, it seems, worship the planet. I mean, it's all about the planet. You've got to save this planet because we don't have anything else. As believers, well, we know better than that. However, the other end of that spectrum seems to be, and I would say many of them are Christians, this is all just a hoax. And whatever your, your beliefs, it's a way to shut off the conversation and write people off. And so I'm thinking, what's the way forward with that? Well, one thing is you look at Genesis 2 when God originally placed Adam and Eve in the garden. It says, whoa. I don't know what that means, but we're going to keep going. <laughs> Genesis chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word work is what it sounds like, but do you know the word keep, to keep, is the Hebrew word shamer, and it means to guard protect and preserve. Think about that. So friends, whatever your views on climate change, I'm not here to change your mind, but God put us here to take care of this place. Do you believe that? Okay. The Bible says so. So anyway, 
Leviticus chapter 26, God, when he sent his people into exile, he, leading up to that, they had not been taking care of the land, which is literally the dirt. And it says, now that you are gone, the land can have its rest. God made this place. He loves this place. He made us here to preserve it. We don't worship it, but we're here to take care of it. But my point is, what if we as Christians, rather than waiting for that difference to emerge and go, ah, you're one of those wackos. What if we went, yeah, I'm a Christian. And actually, we believe our, our Bible says God put us here to take care of this place. How would that conversation go? I think a lot of people would be in shock, honestly, to hear Christian and, yes, let's take care of this place together. But we need to allow, in many cases, Jesus to retrain us from being triggered by our differences to being curious about our commonalities. And so as we close, last thing, Jesus is learning this woman's story, and as he's engaging with this woman and learning more about her, Um, where are his disciples? Back in verse 8 of the chapter, we read it. It says that they were off in the city buying food. Now, I don't want to overthink this because they needed food. We all need food, right? But what's interesting is when they get back, verse 27, they look at Jesus. No, they don't. It says, verse 27, they marvel that he was talking with a woman. Isn't that fascinating how Jesus had covered so much ground with this woman and gotten to such complexity, and he was, you know, understanding, I mean, obviously Jesus already knew her, but, but practically, humanly speaking, there was this conversation, and it was going deeper and deeper, and the disciples came back, and all they saw was, she's a woman. It's interesting how we can look at people that right, way, right? Like, as long as I have the label, I know where to put you. They didn't care about the fact that she was hungry for love, that she wanted to worship God just like them. She just didn't know where or how. She's a woman. But Jesus had taken the time to know more about her. And the first thing that they say to Jesus when they finally speak, it says they were urging him to eat. Rabbi, eat. Get some food. And then Jesus is like, well, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, wait, wait. Did Jesus, somebody hook him up with a lunch? You know? Then now they're missing the spiritual lesson. Jesus is like, my food is to do the will of my Father. I came here to accomplish his work. Friends, our practice reveals our priority. Our practice reveals our priority. What we do shows what's important to us. And Jesus here demonstrates that his priority was people. And it's not that he didn't eat. He needed to eat. But his, this conversation with this woman was more important to him than anything else going on at the time, than getting his stomach full of food. And so as our worship team comes to close, I would just end with this question to sort of put a banner over all these observations of Jesus' engagement with this woman. What is your priority? What is my priority? And again, not based on theology, saying, well, of course, I love all people, but looking at our lives and asking some hard questions. Wow, how do I spend my time? And and this isn't to say God isn't wanting us to have hobbies or to go enjoy a bike ride or all of those things, but what is it that like awakens your heart? And I really want to be careful here and clear. The first step is not feeling guilty. Can you hear that? As the church, so, so much of the time we're sitting going, oh man, I'm so unlike him. The first step isn't shame. The first step is submission. It's saying, Jesus, I want to be more like you. And the beauty of this is, this isn't us going off and being like Jesus. This is the, this is the spirit of Jesus living his life through us. Amen?
Man, if we miss that, we miss, we miss everything. We need a new heart. We need a new nature. And then Jesus lives in us and we find ourselves as we cooperate and listen to his spirit going and doing the things he did. So what is our priority? And I thought rather than just talking at you some more, let's pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be more like you. And we know that that is your purpose for us to be conformed into the image of you, Jesus. Little by little, day after day, as we behold your glory and we become more like you. But God, we specifically want to pray that you would prompt us and identify in us um, maybe a, a person or a group of people that we have been, quote, going around. Lord, would you give us the courage to go toward people, to take people seriously, to look them in the eye and smile at them and ask some good questions. Jesus, I pray you would open the door for an opportunity for each of us to step out and practice what we're talking about today. I pray that God, as we engage with people, that you would help us to see the qualities and the contributions people bring and to honor them in those places. Lord, give us eyes to see people's real needs where the sort of the religious rhetoric that we have, feel like we have to fit in is replaced by genuine curiosity for how people are doing. Jesus, as we engage, would you help us not be in a hurry, not be frantic, not be anxious, but to just rest at the pace of your spirit and allow you to lead. Lord, help us lead with grace. Help us look for opportunities to bless people, not instead of sharing truth, but then praying that you'd open the door for truth. And finally, Jesus, in this contentious culture where it feels like all we can do is argue, Lord Jesus, by your spirit and your power, would you break through that? In the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, Lord, you would give us your eyes to look for the common ground, to connect with people in places of felt need. And we ask this all, Jesus, for your glory and in your name. We need you.